1: This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody welcome. Hello and welcome to 516. Or should I say sure, 516. I am your host Tony Z Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well the whole hoo-ha of Patreon hopefully has been put to bed and it was done in the most honourable and likeable way. So yes, Perion kind of held up the hands, put out a statement, and we're hoping this is all kind of put to bed there now, that they, they messed up, do you know what I mean? And what actually was nice about it, you know, I, I know this has been ongoing, and we're talking Perion, 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 but just for those that are kind of not catching up with the news, just a minute here. Perion held up the hands, you know, and what was nice? was they didn't say anything about you know how like whiny you know, oh it's 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 cause we've been it's constant and they just said they apologize on behalf of everybody else that you know that did this and that was just the right thing to do, you know what I mean? It just it it for me, you know, straight away I forgave kinda of, you know what I mean? And I kinda of put out an email and says, you know, if anyone's gone there, left because of that, you know what I mean, you're more than welcome to come back and that's the case, you know what I mean? Come back over, we're still kind of on with Perion. So that is it put to bed. We will get into the main fiction, because by God, man, it's science fiction. The main fiction of the day is an incident in the literary life of Nathan Arkwright by Alan Steele. Originally published in Asimov Science Fiction in September-October. 2017 edition. I'll give you a little heads up about Alan Steele. We've had him on a couple of times, and listeners will recall that a very proud moment in my kind of science fiction kind of lifestyle there, and that we played Alan's Emperor of Mars, and Alan got up on stage at the Hugos, and you know what I mean, mentioned we're in that Hugo speech as well. Just you know what I mean? Fantastic to quite honest. You know, you know it's like bloody old trumpet, you know, we had a little hand in kind of promoting it and making it, you know, making it a fantastic story. And it's not that I made the story, but we did a great go back to episode. I forget. I should have had me notes, but it's back in the archives there for Alan Steele as well. So I'll give you a little heads up about Alan Steele. Alan Mulheron Steele Jr. became a full-time science fiction writer in 1988, following the publication of his first first short story, "Live from the Mars Hotel." from the Mars Hotel, which was in Asimov's the mid December 88 gave up and went to do this full-time on his first short story. Since then, he's become a prolific author of novels, short stories, essays, and his work has been translated in more than a dozen languages worldwide. His novels include Orbital Decay, Clark County Space, Lunar Descent, Labyrinth of the Night, and Arkwright, amongst others. His most recent novel is Avengers of the Moon, a new Captain Future novel. His novelette, this is the one we're talking about, The Emperor of Mars, won the 2011 Hugo Award for Best Novelette and also won the Asimov Readers Award. His novella, The Legion of Tomorrow, which was expanded as part one of Arkwright, won the Asimov Readers Award 2015. This story is narrated by Drew Sebastiani. Now, Drew, I think I have probably possibly butchered that. (laughs) Surname of yours, sir. But Drew is a writer and a designer, editor and inventor, brewer and narrator. Drew's been called a lot of things in his career, some nicer than others. By day, he spins stories with words and pictures in an advertising creative director. But by light of the moon, he can be found weaving tales for sound and screen and alchemizing bubbling brews with hops and barley. Drew's also an associate editor and regular narrator for Tales to Terrify. Yes, we've got him on the books. Here in the District of Wonders, he lives in Canada with his wife and son and a moranger of small creatures. And there's a link on the Drew's site as well. And Drew has just the sweetest voice for a story. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
2: An Incident in the Literary Life of Nathan Arkwright by Alan M. Steele. Read by Drew Sebastini. In his later years, Nathan Arkwright's fans would often wonder why he chose seclusion. Considered one of the big four science fiction writers of the 20th century, the others were Robert A. Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, and Arthur C. Clarke, Nathan was credited as being the author who raised the standards of space opera, taking what had largely been kid stuff and turning it into an adult genre. But during the 70s, Just as the field was entering a silver age of popularity and respect, Nathan retreated from public life. Although he'd continue writing his Galaxy Patrol novels until the late 80s, he seldom left his home in the Berkshires and was rarely seen by anyone except his housekeeper and a few close friends. Fans believed that his wife's death was the principal cause. There may have been some truth to this because Nathan deeply loved her and was shattered by the loss. However, it was pointed out by genre historians that Judith Arkwright died of leukemia in 1977, and by then Nathan had already been in seclusion for two years. Others speculated that the success he'd enjoyed from the Galaxy Patrol, not just the books, but the television series, the comics, and eventually the movies, had made him arrogant as well as wealthy, and he just didn't want to deal with fans and their annoying questions. This was denied by fellow writers who knew him well, chief among them Harry Skinner, a.k.a. Matt Brown. They pointed out that Nat Arkwright had once been a fan himself, and had even attended the first World Science Fiction Convention in 1939. Well, not exactly the type to sit up all night drinking and singing dirty filk songs, Nathan had never been known to say anything nasty about fans. At least not until his infamous meltdown at the Boston Worldcon in 1989, when he lost his temper at a young man who'd questioned the necessity of space exploration. Truth is, no one knew why, in mid-1975, Nathan Arkwright abruptly disappeared from the SF social scene, going so far as to cancel a guest-of-honor appearance he was scheduled to make at LunaCon in New York later that year. He didn't go to a science fiction convention again until 1989, and never afterwards. Even when he was named a Grand Master by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, he asked Harry to attend the Nebula Awards dinner and accept the award on his behalf. The reason for this self-imposed exile remained unknown to everyone, even family and friends. Yet there was a reason. He'd never been to a convention in the Deep South before he received an invitation to attend one in Nashville, Tennessee. Until then, his con appearances had been largely on the East Coast, with the occasional outing in Chicago, Denver, or Los Angeles. But then he received a letter from the Nashville Science Fiction Club asking if he'd consider being a special guest at something called Kubla Khan Kubed. He was offered airfare, a hotel room, and a banquet ticket, along with his membership, and promised a good weekend at a small but comfortable convention where people would appreciate him. Nathan nearly turned it down. He knew that, by late May, he'd be close to finishing his next Galaxy Patrol novel, The Serious Affair. He hadn't been doing a lot of conventions lately. They were fun, but they distracted him from what he considered to be his principal task. He liked the work more than the role. Or as he often said to Judith, I'd rather write science fiction than be a science fiction writer. But it wasn't just that. At age 54, he'd lately begun to feel a certain distance between himself and the younger generation of writers and fans. He belonged to a generation that had come of age during the Depression and World War II. And although he'd earned a revered position in the field, He was acutely aware that the new-wave writers who'd emerged during the sixties—Moorcock, Ellison, Lagine, Spinrad, all the rest—had become the authors SF fans were most excited about. The cultural dissonance wasn't quite as bad as what friends like Bob Heinlein and Sprague de Camp were experiencing but still he was having trouble relating to the new breed of SF writer who didn't know how to handle a slide ruler, or the fans who thought science fiction was invented by Gene Roddenberry. Science fiction was a young man's game. This was a thought that had recently entered Nathan's mind. Although the Galaxy Patrol book sold as well as ever and the TV series based on it remained in perpetual daytime syndication, he was beginning to wonder if he should tie things up. He had enough money that he could comfortably retire, and there were other things he could do besides write. Maybe the time had come to call it quits and move on with the rest of his life. Nonetheless, Nathan let himself be talked into going to the convention. Maggie Crew, his agent, told him that it couldn't hurt to promote the Galaxy Patrol books a little more aggressively. Instead of pulling away from conventions, she advised him to actually do a few more, particularly in places where he hadn't been before. This thing in Nashville would be a good start, she said. Harry said that he'd heard that Kubla Khan was a pretty decent convention. Fred Pohl had been there a couple years ago as guest of honor, and he'd said that the Southern fans were respectful, loved to read, and generally a lot of fun. Yeah, okay, they drink like fish, he added, but hell. Nat, would it kill you to have a beer now and then? Judith had the final word. Although she'd lately been feeling under the weather, she gave him permission to make the trip. Oh, go ahead, she said. Go down to Nashville. If you meet Johnny Cash, get his autograph for me, please. So he flew down to Music City with expectations of having a good weekend. But by Saturday afternoon he'd come to realize then it might have been a mistake. Kubla Khan Kubed, the third Kubla Khan, hence the name, no one seemed to notice or mind the way it was abbreviated, was smaller than most SF cons he attended, no more than 300 or so people. The program consisted of the writers' and artists' panels. There were little more than bull sessions. The movies were ones he'd seen countless times, like Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe and Forbidden Planet, and the huckster room was filled with spine-broken paperbacks and most nibbled pulps. The big attraction seemed to be the con suite, where the bathroom tub was kept filled with ice and beer. Harry had warned him that Southern fans loved their liquor, and he wasn't kidding. Nathan saw people drinking in the hallways, in the elevators, in the lobby, in the function rooms, even in the swimming pool. They were amused when he nursed a stroze through most of Friday evening, and scandalized when he politely turned down a second. For a small southern convention, Kublai Khan had attracted quite a few of his colleagues. Kelly Freas was the master of ceremonies. Kelly was a longtime friend who'd painted the covers of DAW's reissues of the Galaxy Patrol novels, so Nat was glad to see him again. And there were also old pals like Don Wolheim and Bob Tucker, friendly acquaintances like Keith Laumer and Joe Green, and local authors Perry Chapdelaine and Charlie Fontenay. But Nathan barely knew the young new writers. George R.R. Martin, Joe Haldeman, and Thomas Burnett Swan and he privately considered the guest of honor, Andrew J. Offit, to be something of a showboat. The fact that Andy, an author of sword and sorcery novels, also unabashedly wrote porn under the pseudonym of John Cleave, offended the Yankee Puritan in him. Nathan sat in the audience during his Saturday afternoon solo talk, and quietly eased himself out of the room after. One too many lewd comments. So when a polite young couple approached him a few minutes later and invited him to dinner, Nathan was open to the suggestion. He'd just left the ballroom where Andy was holding forth and was strolling across the foyer, wondering what to do until the banquet. He had the most recent John D. McDonald novel in his room and was thinking he might spend some time with Travis McGee when someone behind him spoke his name. Turning around, he found a couple he hadn't noticed until then. Yes? Nathan asked. May I help you? The young man opened his mouth to speak, but suddenly became flustered and tongue-stuck. Uh, 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 hello, I, uh, I, uh... Peter, the young lady gave her companion a mildly admonishing look, then favored Nathan with one of the most radiant smiles he'd ever seen. I'm sorry, Mr. Arkwright. He gets that way sometimes with people he admires. She held out her hand. I'm Barbara. Barbara Shepherd. This is my husband, Peter. Nathan clasped her hand. A pleasure to meet you both. Are you busy? I mean, if you're going somewhere. Not at all. Just taking a little break. That's all. The dreadful lemon sky could wait a little longer. He was down here to meet his readers, after all. And at least these two didn't smell like beer. Indeed, of all the people he'd encountered so far this weekend, Barbara and Peter were the most, well, normal. Both appeared to be in their late twenties. Peter was tall and slender, with dark hair barely touching the top of his ears. He wore permanent pressed trousers, a long-sleeved dress shirt, and, a rarity at SF cons these days, a tie. Black, plastic frame glasses suggested a college-educated professional, perhaps an engineer or a teacher. Barbara was shorter, her figure trim and attractive, her blonde hair shoulder-length but neat. She wore a sleeveless blue blouse and denim bell-bottoms. She also wore glasses, wireframe aviators whose teardrop frames complemented her face. Nathan pegged her as an academician, perhaps a grad student working on an advanced degree from vanderbilt good that that's great peter recovered his poise he reached under his left arm to produce a book if you'd be so glad i wonder if you'd uh sign it of course the book was one of his own the far side of the galaxy it was a hard cover Not a science fiction book club copy that he was used to signing at conventions, but rather the more expensive, harder-to-find double-day trade edition. As Nathan took it from Peter, he noticed that the dust jacket was wrapped in clear cellophane. Yet it hadn't come from a library sale. This belonged to a private collection whose owner cared about preserving the condition of his books. Impressed? Nathan reached into his shirt pocket for his Mont Blanc pen. He was glad he'd remembered to bring it, and not a cheap bick that he usually carried for everyday use. Peter Shepard, obviously, wasn't the kind of fan who'd hand an author a dog-eared paperback with a remainder mark on the bottom. He deserved better. So Nathan signed the novel, and then, because he liked these two and because they seemed to like him, He decided to forego the break he'd meant to take and instead spend some time with them. There was a couch and a couple of armchairs nearby, so they went over there to have a quiet conversation, occasionally interrupted by raucous laughter from the nearby ballroom. He told them a little about the next Galaxy Patrol novel and was pleased that they got the title's pun, some of the fans he'd met this weekend hadn't, and answered their questions about the series, which were intelligent and demonstrated familiarity with his work. Indeed, Peter let Nathan know that he'd started reading his books when he was only ten years old. The Galaxy Patrol was his first, and he'd read every one after that. And when he'd met Barb and discovered that she liked science fiction too, one of the first things he'd done was lend her his Nathan Arkwright collection. Nothing about them suggested that Peter and Barbara Shepard were anything but what they seemed to be a well-mannered, well-scrubbed, young married couple. Neither had a southern accent, which was noticeable in this particular place, but not unusual. They sounded like they'd come from a mid-Atlantic state, like Maryland or New Jersey. They never mentioned politics, religion, or sex, which was refreshing in this day-of-anything-goes conversation, and Nathan doubted that either of them would have uttered an obscenity if a bowling ball fell on their toes. And so, when Barbara extended an offer to take him out to dinner, Nathan accepted. He knew that he was expected to attend the convention banquet. A meal ticket had been handed to him along with his name badge. But hotel buffet food had little appeal to him, and Andy was supposed to deliver his guest of honor speech after dinner. Nathan had already tasted his brand of humor and didn't care to have any more. So dinner at a good restaurant with a couple of adoring readers was an attractive alternative. Later, Nathan would regret that decision. He went back to his room for a little while to rest, then met Peter and Barbara in the lobby. Their car was parked beside the motel, a beige Chevy station wagon with fake wood paneling along the sides. It wasn't surprising that a conservative young couple like Peter and Barbara but have a car like this. They were probably expecting to start a family and were already preparing for it. But the Chevy was brand new. There was a faint aroma of polyurethane when he climbed in, and even the floor mats were spotless and fresh. Nathan couldn't see the dashboard panel from the back seat, but he suspected that the odometer had less than a hundred miles on it. New car, Nathan commented as he found the seat belts. They lay flat against the back seat, never used until now. Just get it? Barbara and Peter glanced at each other. There was an odd wariness in that look, as if unwilling to admit the obvious. Yes, yes it is, Peter said, glancing back at him from the driver's seat. We leased it. Bought it? Barbara quietly corrected. "Uh, Bought it just yesterday. Resting his hands lightly on the steering wheel, Peter seemed indecisive for a moment. Then, as if suddenly recalling what came next, he dug into his trouser pocket, fished out a pair of keys that were still on the plastic dealer fob. Jim Reed Chevrolet. Nathan had noticed the plaque above the rear fender and carefully inserted the ignition key. The engine started with no problem at all. Yet Peter gave his wife a quick smile of apparent relief. Well, that was all right. New car, bought, uh, leased, rather, although they were reluctant to admit it, only yesterday. Still a bit unfamiliar with it. Nathan tried not to smile as he watched Peter cautiously pull the steering column gear shift down from P to D. At least he could expect a safe trip in a clean car. The con chairman had picked him up at the airport yesterday in a battered Volkswagen with trash in the back and a front bumper that looked like one end was being held on with coat hanger wire. The con chairman's name was Ken, and he'd given Nathan the scariest ride of his life, weaving through traffic at 70 miles per hour and only reluctantly touching the brakes. So long as Nathan didn't get a repeat of that, he figured he'd be okay. Kubla Khan Kubed was being held at a roadway inn on the city's outskirts, the sort of convention motel that hosts everything from shriners' meetings to hobby shows. There wasn't much around except gas stations and convenience stores. Downtown Nashville was visible in the far distance as a couple of skyscrapers in an otherwise small southern city. So, as they pulled out of the parking lot, it didn't come as a surprise to when Barbara told him they'd have to go a little way to get to the restaurant. Unless they meant to take him to Burger King or Hardee's, there wasn't much out here. They drove through weekend suburban traffic, passing strip malls and used car dealerships and billboards for places and products Nathan had never heard of before. The sun was beginning to set casting long shadows across the bus stops and parking lots. They chatted about small things before finally settling on the old Galaxy Patrol TV series as a topic of conversation, with Barbara and Peter asking Nathan which episode was his favorite and being intrigued by the revelation that he liked best the one Jerome Bixby had written. I would have thought it was the one by Harlan Ellison, Barbara said. And Nathan allowed that Harlan's episode was his second favorite, and it only gradually occurred to him that they'd been driving for quite a while. The city was thinning out, and the night had begun to fall. So where are we going for dinner? By then they'd already passed a number of places that weren't fast food franchises, and while Shoney's didn't look particularly appetizing, the giant big boy statue out front was oddly unsettling as if he was about to drop the platter he held above his head on the next car to pass his feet. Nathan was getting seriously hungry, and not much caring where they ate, so long as it was soon. "'It's a nice place,' Barbara half-turned around in the front seat to smile at him. "'Really good food. I think you'll like it.' "'It's a little way out,' Peter added. He'd become less nervous about driving. But he still gripped the wheel firmly with both hands and was positively orthodox about obeying speed limits, stopping at lights even when they were changing. Well, yes, you said that before, but it won't be much longer. The vague way Peter said this caused Nathan to look straight at him, and when he did, he noticed something peculiar. Although dusk was settling in and street lights were starting to come on, Peter hadn't yet turned on the headlights. That wasn't unusual. Many other cars weren't using their lights either, but it meant that the dashboard wasn't illuminated. So what was that reflected on Peter's glasses? From where he was sitting on the right-hand side of the back seat behind Barbara, Nathan saw Peter's face in profile. From this angle, he could make out the inside of the lenses of the black plastic-framed spectacles that, until now, had seemed so ordinary. Yet it appeared that a pair of translucent images were being cast upon the lenses, softly glowing and flickering, changing every so often, like a couple of tiny TVs close to Peter's face. The reflections couldn't be coming from the dashboard panel, nor did they appear to be coming from anywhere outside the car. They seemed to be emitted by the lenses themselves. Looking out, Nathan searched for some light source that might be causing the weird effect. It was then that he truly realized how far they'd apparently traveled. Downtown Nashville was nowhere in sight. No more stores, no more gas stations, and no more billboards for family bootery or double cola. All he saw were houses, and not many at that. Farm fields and horse pastures surrounded them. This was not a place where you'd be likely to find a restaurant. The summer twilight was setting on the rural countryside, shrouding everything in a soft but menacing darkness. Where are you taking me? Nathan asked, trying not to show the fear he was beginning to feel. I think it's time for us to talk, Barbara said. It was then that Nathan realized what should have been obvious all along. Peter and Barbara had abducted him. There had never been any intention to take him out for dinner. Everything they'd said was meant only to get him into the car A station wagon so new that it may well have been stolen from the lot at Jim Reed's Chevrolet, hence their disagreement over whether it was leased or stolen, and drive him so far away from the roadway in that he wouldn't know where he was or how to get back. Who are you people? He could feel his heart racing, the cold sweat at the back of his neck. What do you want? Mr. Arkwright. Nathan. Please relax. Peter spoke to him calmly, trying to soothe him. There's no reason to panic. We're not here to harm you. What the hell do you want? Please, there's no reason to shout. If you'll just calm down. Take me back! We will. Barbara turned to look over the seat at him. Really, I promise. We'll take you back to the hotel soon, and you'll get there safe and unharmed. When she spoke to him, her face was in shadow, except for her eyes. In the darkness, Nathan could see a dim luminescence in her pupils, as if her eyes were backlit by her glasses. The effect didn't occur on the outside, but like Peter's spectacles, the lenses of Barbara's glasses displayed some sort of images on the inside. At that moment. Peter apparently realized that he needed to turn on the headlights. He reached forward and pulled out the knob on the dash. The lights came, and so did the dashboard lamps, and in that instant the weak illumination from Barbara's glasses immediately disappeared. Nathan glanced at Peter and saw that the same thing had happened to his glasses. Whatever he'd seen, it was obviously affected by stronger sources of light. Who are you? Nathan was trying not to sound scared, but he wasn't doing very well. You're not going to believe this, but we really are whom we told you we were. I'm Barbara, he's Peter, and we're great admirers of you and your work. Think of us as fans, Peter added. Maybe just a little more, uh, well, I guess you could say we're a little more devoted than most. He chuckled as he said this and Barbara smiled, but it did nothing to ease Nathan's mind. He was in a moving car being driven by two strangers who could have any number of things in store for him. They'd kidnapped him, and since it was possible that the car was stolen, there was no telling what else they were capable of doing. Nathan knew that he was in trouble. The only way out was by being smarter than they were. So, don't panic. Keep talking to them, listen to what they have to say. Act like you've accepted the situation, and wait for a chance to escape, because this car couldn't keep moving forever. Well, okay, you're fans. Nathan forced himself to settle back into his seat. Which of my novels are your favorites? You've mentioned the patrol novels. But that's not the only books I've... No, Barbara pouted a little, disappointed by his patronizing response. We've talked about that already. You know we love your work. You know we've read everything. Or at least the Galaxy Patrol series, because that's what you're most famous for. But if all we wanted to do was fawn over you, we could have stayed at the convention. So why didn't you? We need to tell you something, Peter said. His gaze never left the road ahead, his hands firm on the wheel. Something that's for you and you alone, and we couldn't take a chance on anyone overhearing us. All Nathan could see through the windshield was a two-lane highway with a long, faded yellow strip down the center. Occasionally a farmhouse or a small church swept by, and he caught a glimpse of a John Deere farm equipment dealer, but that was it. Someone had mentioned to him that the county where Nashville was located also included a dozen or so smaller towns. He could be anywhere in the rural part of Davidson County, or even outside of it. So what did you want to tell me? he asked. Peter and Barbara were both quiet for a moment. Nathan caught a hesitant glance being passed between them as if each was hoping for the other to speak first. Barbara gave her husband a silent nod, and it was Peter who broke the nervous silence. Nathan, Mr. Arkwright, when we told you that we were honored to meet you, we weren't being facetious. We really meant it. Your novels are popular now, but in time your work will become more highly regarded, more valuable. Than you can ever know, more than you could ever believe. "'We're not talking about being bestsellers or getting awards,' Barbara said, turning to look at him again. "'Those will—I mean, those things may happen, but sales and literary prizes are ephemeral, really. In the long run, what truly matters isn't just the test of time.' but the influence your words and thoughts have upon readers who haven't been born yet. What she's trying to say, what we're both trying to say, is that you must keep doing what you're doing. Peter's quiet voice had an undertone of insistence. I know you've been writing for a long time, and you're tempted. You're probably tempted, Barbara interjected, to give up now, even retire. But you can't do that. You absolutely have to keep writing the Galaxy Patrol novels, at least for a little while longer. Despite his fear, Nathan found himself becoming curious. If this was a kidnapping, then it was the damnedest kidnapping he'd ever heard of. There was a certitude in what Barbara and Peter were saying to him that was oddly persuasive, and not because it stroked his ego. "'Why is this so important?' he asked. A reticent pause. Then Peter went on. "'We're coming on hard times, Nathan. Dark times. I know things have seemed tough lately. What with the Vietnam War, Watergate, the Middle East oil embargo? These problems will pale in comparison to what lies ahead. We're approaching a period in history where people will need to find hope.' to believe there's a future, however fictional it may be, that will be better than what they're living through. Hope is what they'll need more than anything else, Barbara added. Like Pandora's box, hope is the one thing that can't be allowed to escape. Right, so naturally, my Galaxy Patrol books, don't ever let yourself believe that they're trivial, Nathan, or that you've somehow outgrown them. Again she looked back at him. Her face was solemn, as she did. Peter's right. You must keep writing. The future... She stopped herself, as if suddenly aware that whatever she'd been about to say was not something she could say aloud. What about the future? Nathan asked. Nothing. Never mind. She turned away from him again. No, really. I want to hear the rest. All at once, he felt fear being replaced by something else, annoyance, like he'd been told a joke with a stupid punchline. You've been talking like you know what's to come, and no one can know that. So is that it? You're trying to convince me that you're a couple of time travelers? Barbara and Peter gave each other a sharp look, and Peter muttered something beneath his breath. Neither of them replied, though and that caused Nathan to become anxious again. And now he knew what was happening here. Peter and Barbara were not visitors from the future. They were two seriously crazy people, mentally unhinged and possibly dangerous, and he'd just done the wrong thing. He'd told them that he didn't share their delusion. If we were... Barbara said slowly, not looking at him. What would it take to convince you? You don't have to convince me, Nathan hastily replied. If you say you are, then I'll take your word for it. No, you won't. You're better than that. She continued to gaze straight ahead. I'm serious, Nathan. If we were to make such an incredible claim, then the burden of proof falls on us, yes? So I'll ask you again. What would it take to persuade you? Barb? Peter began. No, really. I want him to answer this. Barbara turned about in her seat again. In the dim light from the dashboard, her expression was determined. There's nothing you could show me. Nathan was afraid, but nonetheless decided to call her bluff. Clearly she wasn't going to be assuaged by simply agreeing with her. Anything you put before me could be faked. He hesitated, then plunged the rest of the way in. Time travel is impossible. It can't be done. It's a fun idea that a lot of writers have used to come with some great stories. But aside from the relativistic effects of Einsteinian physics, it cannot be achieved. And that's it. Peter let out his breath and an exasperated sigh. Barbara said nothing for a few moments. She regarded him in disappointed silence, as if he'd let her down. Nathan refused to look away. He gazed straight back at her, and as he did, he noticed something. Straight ahead on this lonely country highway, a blinking red light. A traffic signal, suspended above the intersection of another road. I'm a little surprised at you, Nathan, Barbara said at last. I expected for you to be more open-minded, and you're wrong about both things. Time travel is not impossible, and I can prove that to you in such a way that cannot be interpreted as a hoax. Barbara, no. Peter darted a look at her. We can't do that. You know the rules. We've already broken the rules. We did that the moment we walked up to him and... Asking for an autograph is one thing. Taking him to... No, absolutely not. Shaking his head, Peter apparently hadn't noticed the stoplight they were coming up on. Nathan tried not to stare at the flashing light. But as it got closer, he spotted something else. At the intersection, on the right side of the road, was a convenience store. A Seven-Eleven with gas pumps out front and everything. And it was before the light, not after it. We're not far from where we left it, Barbara looked at her husband again. We can be at the lake in just a few minutes. Barb? It's proof, Peter. Solid evidence. If he has this, then he'll know we need to be taken seriously. Her tone became pleading. That's why we broke the rules in the first place, isn't it? So that he'll know what's at stake? Peter didn't say anything. He seemed to be thinking it over. The light was coming up fast, and already he'd lifted his foot from the gas. Most drivers would only make a rolling stop at a red flasher, but Nathan had observed that Peter was unusually careful behind the wheel. He stole a glance at the door beside him. Yes, the stem was up. The door was unlocked. Chevy station wagons had automatic door locks, but so long as Peter would overlook this for just a few more seconds. How about it? Turning to Nathan again, seeming to be challenging him. Are you ready to have your opinion changed of what's possible and impossible? Peter was easing on the brakes. Any second now. Well, I might, Nathan said, if you could really show me something I haven't seen before. Where did you say it is? Not far from here. As the Chevy glided the last few feet to the intersection, Barbara pointed in the general direction of the road ahead. Out near a place called Old Hickory Lake, it's... The car stopped, and Nathan flung open the back door. In a heartbeat, he was out of the station wagon and running as fast as he could. By his mid-fifties, Nathan had largely given up strenuous exercise, and he'd never been one for jogging anyway. But he wasn't so completely out of shape that he couldn't reach the parking lot in just seconds. He heard Barbara shout his name, but he didn't even look back as his legs carried him into the bright fluorescent lights of the overhead awning above the gas pumps. The front doors were only a few feet away. The Seven-Eleven, with its window posters offering Marlboros for sixty cents and six packs of Schlitz for three bucks, had become a sanctuary in a dark and dangerous world. The store was vacant, save for a plump woman with beehive hair and too much makeup. Sitting on a stool behind the counter, she stared at Nathan as he flung open the door and charged into the store. "'Hey, now, hey!' she yelled. "'You can't come busting in like that! This is a—' "'Where's the phone? Call the police! Is there a bathroom? Someone's after me! I need to hide!' All this came out as a breathless babble as Nathan skidded to a halt, knocking off a display box of baseball cards. Call the cops. They... Now you just simmer down. The store clerk glared at him. Ain't nobody after you. There was a portable TV behind the counter with Buck Owens on the tube. Apparently she was put out with him because he'd interrupted. Hee-haw. A plastic tag on her flower-print blouse read, Brenda June. Yes, there is! Even as the words tumbled from his mouth, he heard the faint screech of tires on asphalt. Nathan looked back just in time to see the station wagon rushing through the intersection and down the highway. He caught the briefest glimpse of Barbara's face through the side window. Then the Chevy's taillights vanished into the hot Tennessee night. Now pick up them bubblegum cards. Brenda June demanded. Once he calmed down and appeased Brenda June by restoring the cars to their rightful place, Nathan learned where he was. A little town called Mount Juliet, about fifteen miles east of Nashville. There wasn't much out there except farms and old Hickory Lake, so it was poor place to be stranded without a car. On the other hand, Nathan reflected, It was probably an excellent location to cut someone's throat and throw his body off a bridge, which may very well have been his fate if he hadn't made good his escape. However, he didn't continue to insist that Brenda June call the police, but instead asked if she'd get him a cab instead. He realized almost at once that calling the cops would have been an exercise in futility, First, the only witness he had was Brenda June, who didn't strike him as being none too bright and claimed to have seen nothing except for him running through the door. And since Nathan doubted that the FBI had ever recruited anyone from the Mount Juliet Police Department, asking them to investigate an abduction would have probably been too much to ask of lawmen or accustomed to picking up teenagers for vandalism and underage drinking. But there was more than that. Who would ever believe his story, and even if they did, how would this look when it got into the local papers, as it almost certainly would? As he consumed a ham-and-cheese sandwich and waited for the cab to arrive, Nathan contemplated the Nashville banner and the Tennessean stacked in wire newspaper racks beside the door. It wasn't hard to imagine their headlines. Visiting author kidnapped from sci-fi convention claims it was by time travelers. Yes, this would do his reputation a lot of good, wouldn't it? The fans would never let him hear the end of it. And good grief, if Harlan were to find out. So he settled for a cab ride instead. Getting back to the roadway Inn cost him all the cash in his wallet plus a $20 traveler's check he retrieved from his room while the driver waited. A number of people at the convention was sore at him for skipping the banquet. Apparently, Kelly Frius tried to introduce him from the podium, only to discover that he was nowhere in the room. But Andy Offutt had given a stirring, patriotic speech about the upcoming bicentennial, so that was what the fans were talking about, not his absence and when Nathan was asked why he hadn't been there, he told a version of the truth. A couple of fans had taken him out for dinner, but they'd had a bit of a disagreement, and he'd ended up having to call a cab. He asked a few people if they knew Peter and Barbara Shepard, but no one recognized their names or remembered them from any previous conventions. They'd bought their memberships earlier in the day, paying cash. Aside from the lady who'd been running the registration table, no one recalled speaking to them. Apparently, the only person who'd met them was Nathan. Later, back in his room, he lay on the bed and thought about what had happened. If he hadn't run off, and if he'd been wrong about Peter and Barbara's intentions, what might have happened? What would they have done? Taken him to where they'd left their time machine? nonsense. It had been a practical joke, and an elaborate one at that. Lure a famous science fiction writer into a car, least to hide your identity, drive off into the sticks, and tell him a flattering story about how much his work would matter to future generations. There might have actually been a time machine at the end of the ride, a prop cobbled together from plywood and sheet metal lit just well enough to make it seem authentic. Then take the poor guy back to the roadway inn, drop him off in the parking lot, and head for the nearest bar for a few drinks and a lot of laughs. Even the strange light effect he'd seen with the glasses they'd worn had a mundane explanation. They'd been driving east, which meant that the sun was setting behind them. So what he'd observed was a flickering reflection of the sunset upon the lenses of their glasses. In his nervousness, his mind had led him to imagine something else. And no one had ever accused him of not having a good imagination. In the end, Nathan decided to drop the matter. He didn't tell anyone in Nashville what had happened, and even after he flew home to Massachusetts, he kept the incident to himself. He didn't tell Maggie or Harry or anyone else about the incident, although he resolved never to go to a science fiction convention again. One prank was enough. He considered telling Judith, but never got around to it. She became ill shortly after that, so there were far more important things to think about in the last couple of years they had together. But he remembered the things Peter and Barbara had said to him, and deep in his heart, he knew they were right. About everything. And so, for just a little while longer, he kept writing.
1: And there you go. Copyright is Alan Steele's, and a big thank you to Drew as well. But, oh, gentlemen, gentlemen. And if you have not read Arkwright by Alan Steele, man, it's what... This is the honest truth of this when I kind of... I had a chat with Alan to get this kind of story. I mentioned that uh, it was it was down to that novel that I, I, I get all excited about, kind of vintage science fiction. And Arkwright oh, starts from. Almost a real life scenario. Well, it was. It started from the first, the very first Worldcon. And that's the beauty of this book. Oh, man. It weaves the fact and the fiction. Do you know what I mean? It, Alan throws in there real science fiction writers. Do you know what I mean? At this convention, at this World Convention. And, you know. You've got Nathan in there as well, that protagonist. And it's the, the whole kind of movement of science fiction. He captures you so well. And I was so inspired by that. I was, you know, as you, as you do when, you, you know, when you've got no talent, you go and buy a domain name. And I got goldenageofsciencefiction.com on that. Uh, .com as well. Yes. So listen. That story, what we've just heard, though. This is why, if you want to be a writer, just listen. To, you know what I mean? Just take notes. How good that story was. Just teasing you. Oh man, I just wanted. You know what I mean? That's what I just wanted them to kind of show them the ship, show the fancy glasses. Do you know, what I mean? it was just teasing you along them. I was putty. I was putty in his hands. You know, mixed with Drew's narration. Drew's narration just took that to a different level. So, listen, big thank you to Drew. Drew, you just made that story. Thank you so much. And, Alan, what can I say? Huge thank you. Huge thank you. Go out and buy Arkwright. I listened to it on audio, and it was just fantastic. It starts. The nucleus of the story starts. This is the... Man, it starts at that very convention, the very first Worldcon. But then just goes and goes and goes in time and distance and it's amazing and like I say, and I think it must have been a pleasure for Alan to to write as well because he's, you know, we've had a few chats over emails and I think I'd just like to sit down with Alan, do you know what I mean, and just kind of. Have a nice chat and a few beers, and you know I know he's, he's he's had some kind of health issues of late as well. So Alan, I'm thinking of you, sir, but we have both got this little connection with the past. With you, get Amy in, there, get Amy in there as well, because she was talking about Lee Brackett last week. You know what I mean? Just to talk about these kind of these times, I think, are, of the old science fiction of the greats, is a precious thing that we. Sh- and Alan mentioned it. They should preserve them. Do you know what I mean? And I'm all for that. Do you know what I mean? And like you say, we we have Amy there, who's kind of talking. All you know, me and Kieran did it. 10 years ago you know in our own style but we just takes it to another level and brings in you know the kind of the qualifications you need to kind of back some of these statements up so, but getting back to Art right honestly it was one of one of my favourite stories I read this year I think I I'll sorry listened to it this year it might have even been last year to be quite honest but it goes and it just goes way into the future and that's just fantastic and it's Character, character-driven story as well. So that's my, you know, I don't recommend books. You know what I mean? It's a hard kind of position to be in when you, when you like this. But certainly, I've always been a fan of Alan, Alan Steele. So Alan, thank you so much, Drew. Use our stars, gentlemen. Thank you so much, Drew. You'll get your ass back on this show, narrating, lad. <laughs> so that is really it. Just a few things to tell you about Perion. Next week we're going to have, you know, when we talk about it, preserving the science fiction, we have we're going to have a show within a show. We have not this is the the I think a couple of days after Christmas, so you know it's that no man's land between Christmas and New Year. We're going to do a show where we actually part of that show will be a show doing the, the kind of serial of. Robert Silverberg's The Silent Invaders, and we've got Mark, the host. And I'm just going to play, you know, the beginning of Mark's little intro, then Silverberg actually has an intro as well, which is narrated, and then we get into the kind of first part of this serialised novelization. <laughs> for one, for a better description, which is on Perion, and at, at the, the £5, you'll get it in the serial format, the $5, sorry, or the $10, you get the kind of full... The whole thing, Kitten Caboodle, already sorted as well. So that is going to be, it actually kicks off 1st of January, which is a nice, a nice time to kick something off. Into, I think it's a Monday as well. You know what I mean? Monday, 1st of January, and we're going to get some great vintage science fiction for you out there on Perion. And one more thing with Patreon, is... And this is for anyone that signs up on any level. I've worked it out as well. And hats off to Patreon. They've kind of teamed up with things. So we've now got... I don't know if anyone noticed. We closed the forums. It was just a right big, stagnant ship of a thing. And it wasn't used and It was an old format. So we've now got... Discord, so if you sign up to Patreon, you get automatically, you get an invite into kind of private members, Discord, and we've got Amy in there, and we've got Jim, but just, just 20 minutes ago, Jim popped in, because we've got his own channel, and you can chat with Jim and have a little, you know, leave a message there, we've got voice as well, now man, this takes it to a whole new level for science fiction and, you know, for me in general. So, once I work it out, and I'm nearly there. My son my son uses Discord all the time for, for gaming. But, like you say, Patreon's teamed up with it and it works as, as great. You know, it's all automated, so you, as soon as you sign up for Patreon, you get an invite and then you can come over. But with the audio channel is, we can do live things. Do you know what I mean? So, if you listen to Amy when she talked about Last week, Lee Braggart. Amy is on, sh- for, for herself, show 99. I'm going to interview Amy in Discord, so you can come and listen live to, you know, and it'll be up on Patreon as well, as a kind of little thank you to Patreon listeners as well, and PayPal, if you shout up. At the moment, I'm struggling. I'm trying to find out how to give you them things. So that's going to be it. And, you know, to interview Amy, to find out all about Amy... And this is, you know, I know a little bit, but I certainly don't know, you know, I I, I know she was, you know, I think that 10-year-old picture that I always just think of with Amy is Princess Leah. You know, if anyone hasn't seen it, she was fantastic, man. So I want to kind of interview, you know, just really say hello to Amy and just, you know, thank her for, you know, she's done a hundred of these, you know, once a month. And like Jim as well, you know what I mean? I think they both start together. So we'll try and get Jim on as well and... Even try and get Jim to do like a science news there as well, which is, is fantastic. Get Amy to do one as well. So there's me play. You know what I mean? We still kind of need the support and it's, it's looking now. Everything's okay. So come over to period. We've got some great things coming over, man. Do you know what I mean? And like, see, I'm delving into the red dwarfs there. You haven't got any adverts. You've got this lovely, honestly, that it works seamlessly. This discord where it's, I think there's about 60 members in there now at the moment. It just works and it's nice. Do you know what I mean? It's, just like, it's, it's like having a ship canteen again. You know what I mean? It's, it's somewhere to kind of hang out and talk about things and ask questions. We had one there the other day, just a certain story, and it was actually by, and I didn't get it at all, it was by Cordwainer Smith, the actual story as well. So come over, even if just a, a dollar. It, there's no kind of wacky fee on that as well now. You know what I mean? It's just a dollar gets you that. You know what I mean? Two dollars gets you the ad-free show, so that's okay. But just if you want to have a listen, because we're going to do this in January, where Amy's going to do a show, which will be show one hundred, then we'll kind of do this interview as well, which will be fantastic. So if you want to listen to Amy, pop over to Patreon until next week. Just like I say, good night from me.
0: I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home With nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Rocket ships—I need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by.